This is episode number 357 with the best of the 2021 Best You Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? And welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Today is a special episode. You know, every single year I finish off the year and I look back at all the guests that I've had on and I think, wow. Like when I first started the podcast, never would I have ever thought that I would have been able to have all the people that I've been able to have on and learn so much that I've been able to learn because that's really my favorite part about doing the podcast myself is almost like a selfish reason. It's like, I love how I get to learn from every single person and literally from every single guest, I'm able to take a little bit of knowledge away from them and apply into my life so that I can get closer to the best version of myself. And I hope that's what you feel as well, because that's the goal in having the podcast. That's the goal in sharing it with you guys is that you guys feel like every single person delivers a little bit of value, a little bit of practical knowledge or tips so that you can implement to get closer to the best version of yourself. And this year, 2021, was one of the best years of the podcast yet. I actually started off the year interviewing two of my clients, Jill and Tank, about how they lost 20 plus pounds during my 10-week program, and they absolutely crushed it. And then I've had people like Chris Fowler on, who used to be the host of College Game Day and a very successful broadcaster. I had Ellen Latham on, the founder of Orange Theory Fitness that I have coached at for six years now. I had Dr. Austin Perlmutter, author of Brainwash, talk to us about how you can change your brain. I had Chris McChesney on, one of the biggest influences of my entire life, the best-selling author of The Four Disciplines of Execution. I had Dr. Melissa Davis, an expert on transforming your fitness and your health habits. I had Corey Little on, a nutrition expert, talking about how you can start to think about your health long-term rather than short-term. And then I had my personal mentor on, one of my favorite episodes, Scott Miller, talking about career development and how we can make sure that we focus on our job today and crush our job today, but also make sure that we're looking down the road and trying to get promoted and things of that nature. And today I'm gonna break down five to 10 minute clips from each of those people that I just mentioned, Chris Fowler, the former host of College Game Day, Ellen Latham, the founder of Orange Theory Fitness, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, Brainwash. He's going to talk to you about how you can change your brain by your decision-making. Chris McChesney, he's going to talk about how delayed gratification is so critical when it comes to goal achievement. Dr. Melissa Davis, this is huge for you guys right now. She's going to be talking about habit formation with regards to your fitness goals. Corey Little, super important, again, with those of you guys who have health and fitness goals in the beginning of 2022. He's going to be talking about how you can think long-term when it comes to your health. And then Scott Miller, like I said, my personal mentor, he's going to be talking about how you can crush your current job and still work to get promoted at the same time. I hope you guys are really excited about this one. Some of you guys maybe have listened to every single one of these. Some of you have maybe listened to one or two or a few of them. And some of you maybe have not listened to any of them. And maybe this is your first episode of the Best You Podcast. If it is the first episode of the Best You Podcast, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you share it with a friend and family member. If you love it, make sure you leave it a five-star rating and review on the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. You guys are going to get a lot of value and a lot of bits and chunks of knowledge and tips here from this episode. So I hope you enjoy, again, Chris Fowler, Ellen Latham, Austin Perlmutter, Chris McChesney, Melissa Davis, Corey Little, and Scott Miller, all here to get you closer and closer to your best you. Here's to finishing off 2021 right and having the best year yet coming right up in 2022. Hope you enjoy. I, I think the idea of long-term is so overrated. I do think that we're almost taught from birth to focus on the future, 
to do now will get you ready. And, and everything we do, we walk around in preparation as opposed to just being in the moment and, and figuring out what can I do better today that'll prepare me for the future, but I'm not thinking about that. So when you're when you're in high school, all you're doing is preparing for college, right? That was That's where they drill into your head. When you're in college, you're preparing for the real world. Yeah. And a lot of times... And in the real world, you're preparing like for retirement. Pre yeah, we're all, yeah, we're always preparing for something that's next. Yeah. And then, yeah, then you prepare to retire, then you prepare to die. Yeah. Why not just be present, be in the moment, and focus on what you're doing every day to get better? I know you believe in this. You know, consistent, relentless, incremental improvement. That's what it is. Don't sit there and stress about the future, right? The future is unknowable. It's uncontrollable. Control is largely an illusion. Not to get too deep early. I'm sure we'll go places with this <laughs> conversation. But I, I really do, I do believe that we want to feel like we have control. No, no, we don't. Yeah. We don't. You have control over how you behave. I, I believe you have control over what you think. You, you should be able to control your thoughts and hopefully to a certain degree control your feelings but you can certainly control your habits and your behavior and your work ethic and your energy and things like that. And those are always controllable. Those are what you count on. Do not, young people, listen to this, do not freak out and stress about the future. Mm -hmm. Your life will go by way too fast and you're going to have regrets that you missed opportunities if that's where you put your mind all the time. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think one of the things that you said in there is you can control your energy. And to me, it comes down to when you think about how do we actually not worry about the future, to me, you're going to give energy to something. It's you're going to give energy to what does the future look like? Or you're going to give energy to like, how do I be successful today? And to me, it's like, just try to channel as much energy to being present and how can I be successful today and then worry about tomorrow when tomorrow's going to come. Um, so I think that's... I enjoy your content. I know that's the message you drive home. There's very few things that are more important to express to people. And I know it doesn't feel like Sometimes in this, our current condition, when there's nothing but time and inactivity is driving people crazy and boredom and the feeling of helplessness and anxiety, all that kind of stuff, that, that message is sort of needed now more than ever. Because even though the present feels sometimes claustrophobic or restrictive or frustrating, it's no less important to, yeah. to focus on exactly what you can do today to get better and how to use the time and where, where to put your energy. No doubt. Well, I want to make the, a little bit of a transition into the college game day stuff. So you got there in 86, a couple of years with Scholastic Sports America, another couple of years as kind of a sideline reporter with college football. And then in, in 1990 is when you start a college game day. But like you had talked about, ESPN had only been around for seven years, essentially, before you got there. And I think a lot of young people, including me, don't really realize how far college game day has come since the beginning from being inside and, and not being on the road. And honestly, it sounds like your experience with Scholastic Sports America and the creativity that that job and that role allowed you, allowed you to really flourish with game day and, and give you a lot of the creativity with that moving forward. But question I want to ask you is what was y'all's original vision for game day going into it in 1990? <laughs> Man, I don't even know if there was a vision. <laughs> if, if, if game day is now a Walmart Think about that. Yeah. What it was in 1990 was a, a, a mom and pop grocery store wow. on the corner. Okay. It was a show nobody watched. It was a show that led into football games at noon Eastern that nobody watched. 
It's a half hour long. It was in the studio. It was about three years old when I got the gig. So it seems like, wow, college game day and you were 27. Yeah, but nobody wanted to host college game day. (laughs) It was not desirable, man. So I did. I wanted to host it. The, The year before, the host of the show had to suddenly leave. His wife was giving birth. I get a call on Friday. Get in here. We got a meeting. You're going to host game day tomorrow. And I had done features for the show and I had done sidelines. So I was in the sport. I had not done a lot of uh, anchoring at that point at ESPN. Hadn't done yet sports center, things like that. But, okay, what are you going to do? Opportunity knocks. You don't say no. So I went in there. I never forget this. Some in your audience are not going to have any idea who Bino Cook was because he's a very crusty old broadcaster who'd been around for a long time. He was part of that game day as one of the pundits. And he sat there in this meeting before my first show as a fill-in. And he, look, Fowler, look at you down there. This, this is how we talk. Look at you down there. You're shitting your pants. You have no idea. You're not ready for this. You're not going to sleep tonight. You know, and everybody's laughing. And I, eh, I'm laughing along. That was his, you know, that was their, again, that was their hazing. That was their indoctrination, right? So I did, he was wrong. I did sleep. I got up. I did just fine. No pants for shit. It went good. And then the next year when the job came open, I was the host. Uh, but that, that audition there, if I'd flunked it, different path in life. So, you know, the old saying, you know, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. I had my opportunity. Fortunately, I was prepared enough and pulled off the performance to make myself look like a guy who could host the show. And the next year I did. But it took about three years to get game day on the road. And those early years, we're just a studio show, went from 30 to 60 minutes. Finally, we convinced them to take this thing on the road one time in 1993 when Florida State and Notre Dame played a one-versus-two game in South Bend. We didn't know what we were doing. We plopped the desk down in the lobby of the basketball arena, covered the pep rally the night before, which is a big deal at Notre Dame, and then did this show with a bunch of people standing behind a velvet rope, but right there, that close to us, wondering, what the hell, what's going on, what's going on, huh? And we kind of got through it, but knew we had something, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, we began to go on the road more and more and more, and the show totally changed. So we didn't have that vision when we started, but we saw along the way those lightning bolt moments where, ha, okay, this is what this could be, and man, is this fun, first of all. Like, we're thinking yeah. more, what's better than being on the scene of the biggest games? I didn't have to call the game or I didn't get to call the game, depending how you look at it. I wasn't ready to call the game professionally. <laughs> right. But I got to go stand on the sidelines and watch ringside all of these epic games, including the championship games. And so that was what it was about. This is enjoyable. This is fun. And then the company sort of you know, realized, oh, okay, this is also really lucrative. We're making a lot of money with this show. Sponsors want to jump on board with this. And the energy of the crowd behind the set became a character in the show and yeah. became what set the show apart from everything else. Yeah. I mean, I've probably been to, geez, five, six, seven, eight college game days myself. And the energy is parallel to to nothing that I've ever seen. You were, you were in the crowd standing out there in the back or did you have any special uh, accesses? No, no ever uh, special access. But yeah, I've been to, I've been to a number of them. But yeah, oh yeah, it's a ton of fun. One of the things, and it's funny because I, I didn't write it down. It just it struck a chord with me so hard when I think it was on like one of your Instagram stories or one of your videos that you talked about in regards to like preparation. You were talking about preparing for 
uh, maybe a game or preparing for game day, just preparation in general and how important it is. And you said that you can't over-prepare, but you can overuse your preparation. And that to me really resonated with me in regards to like doing interviews, because sometimes if I overuse my preparation, I'm too focused on the questions that I wanted to ask rather than the conversation that we're actually having. But I just kind of want you to riff a little bit on the importance of preparation and what it kind of looked like with college game day, because I'm sure it evolved over the years, but once you got to so many games, a lot of different interviews, so many different kids' names, their high schools, where they're from, and all these kinds of things, like what did preparation mean to you and what did it kind of look like before game day? Yeah, I mean, I think that every single person you talk to who's successful, regardless of what field they're in, would talk about preparation if they're being honest. No one gets to where they want to go without preparation. It doesn't matter what you do. This is my, I'm, I'm holding up the notes for a, a podcast interview I'm doing later today. I've known the guests 25 years, right? I've known yeah. Eddie George, Heisman winner, NFL star for 25 years. But I got pages of notes like this because that's what you do. You prepare, you think about different ways to say something, different directions to take the conversation. You don't rely on the fact that you think you know this person. You know, I was talking to Matthew McConaughey on, on my podcast. People think of McConaughey as being this freewheeling, instinctive actor. You know, he doesn't put a lot of thought into it. He just riffs. He did when he started, but then he got burned. And there's a story he tells, I mean, a really humiliating experience where he thought he could wing it. He came in unprepared and embarrassed himself and said, never again. And I talked to comedians, musicians, actors, obviously broadcasters, preparation. Laurence Olivier, arguably the greatest actor ever, certainly on stage, said that you have to have the humility to prepare, then the confidence to perform. Because grinding away and preparing is not romantic. It's not always that exciting. It's getting in there in the trenches, but it's essential. And if you put the preparation in, you should have the confidence to do the job. I, I, I tell kids preparation is confidence. Without the first, you can't have the second. And I'm talking about at this stage of my career, 30 years doing this, I can fake it, but I know I'm faking it. And I know that deep down that doesn't feel right to me. And also I know there are customers savvy enough to know when you're bluffing your way through something that you didn't really prepare for as you should have. I do not want that gym concept and you're paying them $10, $9 to train people and do all this. That isn't what I want. In my studio, my original studio, I had paid well, like we pay. And I said, I wanted that. So if someone's teaching 10 dozen, 15 classes, they've got a nice little very part-time gig going on that they're making a nice bit financially, because that is an important aspect of it, but also that, you know, we're making them successful at what they want to be in the fitness industry. We're giving them education, information, the whys. We're listening to them. It's a two-way street. We're respecting them. All of these things that I think in the fitness industry, at least I did not see with fitness professionals, you know, you were kind of poo-pooed if you went into fitness. I mean, you know, people 
waiting. Ellen, what's your career going to finally be one day? You know, they're not laughing now at me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was like, you know, I was single parenting a child and this and that. And it's like, are you going to get a real job or so on and so forth? Because maybe I was in jobs where I had to find my own medical coverage and so on and so forth because it wasn't offered. But I knew that's what I needed to do. This is what my calling was while I was on this earth. So I knew that. I knew my purpose and I wasn't going to alter it because maybe people thought I was supposed to be doing something else or society thought that. So it was very important that this fitness product gave people viable jobs, good financial stability. And I think, you know, we're one of the few fitness group training programs out there that have really put effort into that for our employees. Yeah. I could not agree more as an actual employee myself. Um, I I really liked how you distinguished early on the, you need to be kind of approaching the client and the employee as trying to fulfill their definition of success when the client that's, that's hope with hope with their fitness and their physical fitness. And with the employee, I mean, you could not have hit it more on the head in regards to financial stability, in regards to providing professional growth and learning and listening to them, because you guys do so much of that at Orange Theory. It's just embedded in the different systems and processes that we have that we're allowed to give feedback for the workouts where we get so much constant education. Because I I know, you know, you get your certification early on, but so much of my learning has been through Orange Theory. And I felt like I've grown so much as a trainer and so much as a professional in this industry just through training. And that's why so many people do stick around for so long. That's why I have been doing it for five and a half years now. At this point, you still have people who are doing it from day one. So that could not be more true and it could not be more apparent uh, to me right now. So Orange Theory, even since the time that I've been around, has made a lot of different, I'm using the term leaps, have made a lot of leaps. And you know, you went from one studio to franchising and then you pulled back and you guys grew even more. And then you went to different countries, then you added new technology, you got the in-body scan, we're adding Lift 45s. You know, there's a lot of these new leaps or new additions to it. Was there ever a most nerve-wracking leap or a most difficult leap that you guys took? You know, listen, the technology is always challenging because, you know, you're always going to have things. You know, my watch doesn't work. This is a, you know, the the rower is, you know, you got all of these things that are going to, you know, have a chance to go wrong with technology. So, you know, what I love about, again, you get to the manager, that's Dave Long, is that he, you know, was one that just felt we have to own fitness technology. We own heart rate monitoring. We now at 13 years have more heart rate data on people than any other company from an Apple, from anything, because it's tied to a specific form of training where an mm-hmm. Apple, you know, everyone's running and doing their own thing and putting stats in. So if they wanted to really do some solid research or some information on hit training or whatever the case may be, we've got that data. And this is stuff that we're, you know, deciding how far we want to go with it, looking at being able to really come out with some statements that by doing this, this way, this is what happens to the human heart, which is the most important muscle in your body. So I would say technology is always hold our breath in the sense of, you know, do we go to another, you know, we went to the flex, we went to the, you know, and that one wasn't as good as this one and so on and so forth. But the beauty is we keep throwing it out there. 
And that's a big investment financially, believe me, from the corporate office of going, you know what, we're going to do this. And sometimes not, you know, it pay back as much as it should pay back. But it's we feel that we want to be the leaders in this form of fitness training. And we're so far ahead of doing that, that that probably the technology is always the most challenging thing, but the most rewarding thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think that a lot of times when you try something new, the biggest thing that's going to either spark you to do it or not do it is you believe it's going to work versus you don't believe it's going to work. And so when there's these moments where you have a pretty strong belief that it's going to work, but you're not really sure what kind of closes the gap to allow you to take action, if that makes sense, right? Like if you're here and taking action is here, but belief only takes you halfway, what's the thing that closes the gap to where you actually do it? Yeah, I mean, I think from really sitting in those kind of brainstorming sessions and so on and so forth, it's back to that word vision. It's really having the vision that we want to leave a legacy of who we are and what we are. We brought interval group training, heart rate interval group training. We put it on the map. You know, no one was using heart rate monitoring systems. No one was, uh, you know, I mean, we even see a lot of copycats with our language now, endurance, strength, and power, this type of not that we created those words, but how we formatted it and how we had designed it in our workout. And that's fine. We're flattered. That's how we look at it. And, you know, we're pretty confident in what we're doing. But I think what that is, is have been, you know, such great visionaries in that. And that's where I have to really, con- you know, uh, the contribution are my partners, those guys, when they came on board and wanted the artistry of, you know, you kind of really get the human body and how it works. And, you know, a lot of different people from women who, you know, are comfortable working out with men and they're overweight and this and that, and they're all coming in and doing this. You've kind of worked with all that and we respect that, but they're visionaries. These guys, they are like, we're going for it. And I've seen it in action. I'm excited by it. And uh, sometimes I just grab onto the, you know, tail and take off. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I love it. Well, down down to the last few questions here, Ellen. We've talked a lot about your your two business partners, Jerome and Dave. What do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned from them over the past 13 years? Um, I think because I never had partners and that type of thing is that, you know, collaboration is huge. And what can come of the right team in collaborating is offering all kinds of great insight. You know, we talked about earlier that someone else might not have, and which initially does, it kind of sets off some light bulbs in your head. So when you're sitting around and you're collaborating around something, and then someone throws something and you're like, oh, wow, yeah. And what if, and this type of thing happening, and this is what a big part of our growth was, is really having those kind of minds hiring, those kind of people to come in and be a part of our team that in these collaborating sessions, great things were discovered. The truth is for a lot of the stuff that matters, whether it's being financially successful, having a successful relationship, or being a healthy person, it's the compounding interest you get from consistent, decent decisions. It's not all about forcing yourself to make a couple of really great choices. You have to condition your brain for better choices. Your best bet at being successful is to plan to make things easier for tomorrow's brain. That's where we should be spending our time, not blaming ourselves for the decisions we made today or yesterday, 
Certainly, look at your past. If you look at your past, you can see the things that influenced you, the way that you made choices, but not through the lens of blame, through the lens of curiosity. What went wrong? What went right? And once you start getting that insight, you're then crafting your future brain for success. I I just couldn't agree anymore. We could talk more and more about this all day. I want to go back to, so kind of what you talked about in the beginning about in regards to how your brain is constantly changing and this idea of neuroplasticity and also kind of the idea of epigenetics, meaning that a lot of people think that they're predisposed to certain illnesses, predisposed to certain things because of their family genetics, which obviously has a, a certain role, but there's also this role of epigenetics based off of your behavior, essentially. And one of the things that I've heard before, and one of the things that I like to say is that a lot of times it's not family DNA that's passed down, it's family habits that gives you the same result as your people that you're descending from. So talk a little bit about how your brain does have the, like a little bit deeper into the science to give people like more belief that this is actually real behind like how your brain changes every single day and how you're not subject to whatever your parents or grandparents and stuff like that have had in the past. Yeah, I think this is a a super empowering concept. Um, It can really take you deep into philosophy as well, and even spirituality, if that's, you know, where you want to go with it. But there's nothing about us that is stable. You know, we, we come up with this idea of a self or identity as though that is something that perseveres. And it's nice, but I think more powerful to understand that we're part of this giant flux, right? This giant universal ecosystem where we're always changing. You turn over millions of cells every few seconds. And what researchers have shown is that in the brain, the wiring changes constantly as well. And so neuroplasticity is both functional and structural, meaning functionally, the way that the neurons work changes and structurally, the way that the neurons are connected changes. And you add in this additional concept of neurogenesis, which is the idea that we create new neurons throughout our lifespans in a couple of really important parts of the brain. And you realize that there's kind of this river that we're in as far as, you know, we could call ourselves the river if you want to have that stable sense of self, but the molecules, the cells within us are the water rushing through. So we can always be changing who we are with our decisions. When you talk about genetics, you know, certainly there are conditions in which a genetic predisposition or a genetic code that's passed down from your parents will lead to a specific outcome, a specific medical condition. And in several of these cases, we don't have necessarily a way out in that we don't have necessarily a treatment for it. However, in the majority of cases, what genes do is they kind of set us on a course and it's up to us to change that course. One of the nice metaphors that I've heard about this is when it comes to most of our diseases, if a a gene plays a role, it may load the gun, but it is on us to pull the trigger. And so that gets to the subject of epigenetics. And that's basically the idea that it isn't so much the genes that we have, but the way that they are converted into information that matters. Epigenetics, meaning on top of genes, is the study of how things like methyl groups, but basically these modifications of the genes, tell them which ones to be active and which ones should be silent. So What's super cool about this is we know that our lifestyle changes, whether it's the food we eat or the exercise we get or the sleep we get, changes the epigenetics in our bodies. So 
when we give our body certain foods or when we give our body the right amount of rest or when we do the right types of exercises, that is changing the way that our genes are converted into information. So with all of that kind of together, I think it is such an empowering message to people that, yeah, your parents might have been unhealthy. You know, you might have a predisposition to uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, but that's just the starting point. That's one story that can be written. And it's up to us to say, you know, is that the story that I want? And what can I do to change the narrative? And every day we have a chance to do that with our choices around foods, as I said, exercise, sleep, but also mindfulness, nature exposure, our relationships. These are variables that speak to our DNA and change the way that that is converted into information and thereby changes who we are literally at a molecular level up to proteins, our organs, and getting back to where we started, the whole concept of self, our identity is changed with the decisions we make. Yeah, man, I, I don't think I could have said it any better in regards to it being such an empowering idea, which is why I wanted to bring it up because I think so many people do think that if my parents had this thing, then uh, there's nothing I can do about it. But it's like, no, like you, you actually can play a huge role into that. I think one thing I want want you to touch on briefly, because I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize and it, it can, the realization of it can allow you to create behavior change. And that's this idea that these unhealthy foods are yes, high in calories, but low in nutrients. So they don't give us the satiety or the satiety that actually like good foods do. So I want you to just kind of riff on why that is for a quick minute, because again, I just think the, I think a lot of people don't understand that and don't know that, but if they did, they're like, oh, that's why, like, I, I don't want to eat this unhealthy food because it's just going to make me want to eat more and more and more and more. This, this speaks to the idea of, you know, a calorie of blank is not the same as a calorie of something else. A calorie of broccoli is not the same as a calorie from popcorn, right? Or yeah. from a candy bar, because it's not just about the calories. It's the way our body processes the calories. So for example, if you read something that says it has 300 calories of serving, doesn't mean that your body is going to absorb all of those calories. Some of those calories may actually be used up in the processing. So for example, protein is thought to have a thermogenic effect in that it increases heat production and therefore doesn't actually provide the same equivalent of calories as what you might think of something like fat or carbohydrate. You know, so much about goal achievement has to do with delayed gratification, right? The reason the, the day job gets taken care of is because the consequences of that stuff is immediate. The goals always have this delayed gratification. And what the four disciplines do is they provide some immediate consequences associated with those activities. So just the, the lead measure went red like that. Right yeah. now you can start to compete with the day job. But I love the, the analogy that you just, there, there was some immediate consequences to, okay, I'm off my plan right now. I got a course correct right now. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said so much of, goal achievement is delayed gratification because I think that is like a human superpower to be able to embrace delayed gratification. And for me personally, the only way I've been able to experience that is to trick my mind and give myself those alignment points or those lead measures or those daily feedback, that weekly feedback, because that was one of the things a few years ago, and it's not like I mastered it now, but that was one of the things a few years ago that I really struggled with was like patience with the journey. And I found myself becoming more and more patient with it solely because I had so many things that were like, had to get done today. And I saw those things as rewarding in relationship to the longer term goal. And I think that, you really said a key word when you said, you almost have to trick yourself into this. 
I'm learning more and more, and, and Claire makes this point in, in Atomic Habits, that, that just betting on willpower is just not a good strategy. No. And what can I do so that I don't have to run contrary to human nature? Yeah. If I know that urgency dominates importance, how do I make the important stuff feel urgent? Right. Well, you make a commitment. You have to report to a partner that week. That's one way to make it urgent. Right. Yeah. It's all it's got. You just time activated that sucker. And when a lead measure goes red, what we're doing is we're not changing human nature. We're just changing our perception of the problem so that it has that same immediacy. And, and we're sort of slowly developing, very slowly developing a little more capacity for delayed gratification. But you have to start sort of go working with natural capacity, which is, I got to have immediate consequences on this stuff or it's not going to happen. And there's some humility in that, right? There's some humility to say, yeah, I, you know what? I need these belts and suspenders. I, I do need to trick my brain into this a little bit. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's like, I, I know I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be patient. I need the, I need to give myself these small wins to show myself that I'm actually progressing. And so that I'm staying, stay motivated to keep moving. That's a key word too, small wins. We see this all the time, whether it's on, on an organizational level or on team level, making small wins a big deal. Yeah. Is, is, it seems to be a critical part of the formula too. Yeah, I didn't think about this until you just said it, but that's why I am so adamant on people defining success for themselves today. Because I, I truly feel that when you don't define success for yourself today and you don't say like, what do I need to get done or what do I need to achieve or, or how do I need to feel? If you don't verbalize that stuff to yourself or you don't write that stuff down for yourself, then you haven't defined what the small win is. And so you can't have the small win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so right. And we live off of that stuff. We started to get into the engagement dynamic around the disciplines. In other words, when people executed well, there was a spike in morale and engagement levels. And we wanted to understand why. It turned out there was all this research done. I think I brought this up in the last podcast. A lot of research done by a guy named Frederick Hertzberg in the 1960s. And, you know, Hertzberg, his big thing was, is look, there's a whole bunch of reasons people quit, but don't confuse employee satisfaction or turnover or even camaraderie with engagement. Engagement is always about the work. And there's only two things that truly drive engagement. And that is, am I winning at something that matters? And so your point is right on. If somebody doesn't have a definition of success, then they're not going to be achieving. There's, there's, you can't have this. this you can't, it's very difficult to see small wins. If you, and, and when you recognize that you know, just like a shark has to keep swimming to stay alive. For whatever reason, the human psyche really survives on small wins, small achievements. You know, yeah. Somebody asks you, how's your day? You know, yeah, there's probably some good things that happen, some bad things, but what really makes a good day is, you know, did I get something? Did I achieve something? Did, you know? So yeah. I think we live on that a little bit. Right. So if you kind of just as a, a metaphor, an analogy, if you kind of picture water on a piece of land, and it's just yeah. sort of seeping around, right? It could go any different direction. That's kind of how our behavior and response to situations and context is. But then once you start digging a little trench in that land, the deeper you dig and the longer you spend filing away that little trench, 
the more water is going to go automatically in that direction. So that's kind of how habits are. You're sort of digging a trench as an analogy in your brain so that when you encounter a certain situation, you'll act in the same way consistently over time. It doesn't happen right away. Like you build the first trench, a little water goes in, but some still goes elsewhere. And that's kind of how behavior is too. You know, you start trying to form a habit and you're still going to mess up sometimes until you've got that brain trench uh, nice and deep so that your behavior just sort of automatically flows when it encounters that uh, situation. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I like that analogy a lot. I think that makes so much sense and something pe- a lot of people are going to understand immediately. So well, I think one of the things that a lot of people think about or read about is like, how long does it take me to actually form a habit? And there's so many things out there that say like, it takes this long, it takes this long, it takes this long, it takes 10,000 hours, it takes 30 days, it takes two months and stuff like that. And I think that most people, even the people who say that would agree that it's not just so cut and dry in regards to how long it actually takes. So talk about a, a little bit of some of the factors in regards to like what determines how long a habit takes to form. Right. So for instance, if you're trying to start a new habit, but you have current habits that get in the way of that, you not only have to create a new habit, you have to undo old habits. So you sort of doubled your workload in that case. If you're just trying to add something new, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to start flossing more regularly, you know, that's something people could probably integrate in a couple of weeks. If you've never exercised in your life and you want your new healthy habits, your healthy lifestyle, that might take you a year to really get all of the pieces together and consistent. So I think people just need to take into consideration their position, like where are they coming from? How new is this behavior? How difficult is it for them? How stressful is it for them? Um, how big of a change is it? And uh, do they have knowledge and experience in this area that'll help them start that habit already? And all of those factors play into how long it's going to take. But it definitely, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight, no matter what it is. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I like what you said in regards to like, kind of how new is it and, and how close to that habit have you been acting in the past? And so the way that I verbalize it to a lot of my clients when we're talking about what it is we want to be doing on a weekly basis is try to choose something that you feel like you're willing and able to do based off of what you've been willing and able to do in the past. Yeah, yeah, and another, so, another good tip when you're deciding what habits you want to form is to make those decisions and uh, make those goals when you're a little less comfortable. If you're in the middle of a hard run and you're thinking about like how you're going to take your exercise up to the next level, you're going to make a more realistic decision than if you're sitting on the couch as you have been for months and you're like, I'm going to start this really, you know, huge exercise program. I'm going to make these big changes. It's really easy to overestimate what you are willing to suffer through when you're comfortable. When you're uncomfortable, you tend to have a little bit better perspective of what you're willing to deal with for for change. Mm. I like that a lot. It makes so much sense. And so I do a 10-week fitness goal setting program with people. And anytime I kind of have it so they start off by setting the goal and setting off kind of like their habits on their own. And then before we actually start, I'll hop on a call with them to talk about what they've come up with. And Every single time, almost inevitably, I have to like scale people back. And so I I think that I think that's really revealing in regards to like try to almost come up with your goal when you're uncomfortable or in the middle of the workout or when you're like, I don't, I don't know. I think I think that's how, how else can like people implement that and apply that? Because I feel like it's a little bit hard to tell people like go on a run and while you're on a run, think about what your goal is. Yeah, sometimes what I'll have clients do if they're coming, you know, for a diet and training and they have these big goals, I say, you know what, let's start. I'm not going to like throw that off the table, but let's start with something more moderate just for a few weeks. 
like a little bit more moderate diet, a little bit more moderate training goals. And after a few weeks, you feel like you're ready to take it up a notch. We definitely can. And almost always, you know, except for some sort of very experienced clients, they get to those two weeks and they're like, no, this is hard, but I can handle it. And I really don't want to mess that up because I'm, you know, riding the success and I'd rather keep riding the success than push myself so hard that I end up failing. I like that a lot. So one of the things that I was pretty intrigued by from the book early on was how habits are a lot of times amplified or stronger during stressful moments. And I thought that was, you know, pretty revealing. I think you talked about maybe a study in there where healthy college students eat healthier during exams and then unhealthy college students actually eat worse during exams. So their current habits are just essentially amplified, if you will, during stressful situations. And you kind of talk about in your book why that's why it's so important to like form habits because inevitably stressful times are going to come up. And so you're going to, you're going to need to have the good habits to be able to, to back you up. So talk a little bit, riff a little bit, a couple minutes on that idea and how we can try to form habits during unstressful times. So that in stressful times we're set up for success. Yeah. So absolutely. I thought that study, just the first time I read it, it blew my mind. I was like, wow, this is, this is why habits are so powerful because generally stress derails us from our goals. You know, it makes it harder, but when you have solid goal-directed habits, stress can actually make you do better in terms of working towards your goals, which is absurd, but awesome. And the idea is basically like when you're stressed, you're going to go into your default mode. And if you've set up default habits that support your goals, you're going to continue to make progress towards your goals, even while you're struggling with, uh, you know, being able to think about and make decisions and figure out what to do. And motivation goes down, willpower goes down, all of these other things that you can use to work towards your goals get reduced by stress, whereas habits get amplified. So mm-hmm. habits are really what we want to rely on. And that sort of gives us more of a bandwidth too. You know, when, when life gets tough, if we have habits that are taking us to our goals and all this other stuff is going on, we have more bandwidth to deal with that other stuff than we would if we were trying to use, you know, grit and willpower and, you know, just brute force to sort of push towards our goals. But other than that, I, I jokingly, I tell them, look, bury your scales in your backyard. Like, get get away from those scales, man. Like, I hope I don't hurt anyone's feelings, but man, we were not created to be Weight Watchers. Yeah, we, we were created to be life livers, like to live life and enjoy life and enjoy food. And so, we maybe touch base with the scales about once a month, but like another metric that we talk about and we look at is what I call LG, which is life gained. For, let's, let's forget about how much weight you lose. Let's also talk about how much life you're gaining. And that comes in a myriad of ways, you know, like, oh man, like my son came home from college and we went and got Mexican food and I didn't have to say, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm on a diet. Like I ate the Mexican food and I enjoyed it and I didn't go crazy. And then I didn't beat myself up later. That's life gained, you know, like, oh man, I've, you know, I've lost some weight. I'm not even sure how much, but I have so much more energy. Like I actually feel like playing with my kids when I get home from work and that's life gained. So anyways, I I love it. There's a lot in there that I I loved and that I could unpack, but just kind of touch on a few things. I love the learning to live in the middle thing because not everybody wants to be the extreme fitness side of things and health side of things, but also there's almost like a little bit of a movement now that's okay on the other side of the things where it's like, it's like, you're really fat, like love your body anyway. And you know, how to actually verbalize that is, is a little bit tough, but it's like, well, you're unhealthy. Like you actually need to, you need to get healthier. So there's, there's a little bit of like the negative thing. That's almost like being promoted a little bit now too, when it's like, well, I'm not really sure about that. Like live in the middle. I like that a lot. And then 
The real thing that I wanted to kind of touch on is the scale is is not everything because you asked like the example that you had with your friend when he said, I want to be 175 and you're like, why? And then he came up kind of with his reason. And my goal setting process, I always start off with people and they determine before they set their goal, like their actual tangible goal, they set what I've termed with my brand is their big, their best you goal, BYG. And their best you goal is, is why they're doing what they're doing and and like how they want to be thinking about themselves differently, how they want to be looking at themselves differently, what do they want to be doing differently and kind of what they want to avoid. And they write that down and kind of boil it down into a few sentences. And then we write down what's called a success indicator, which is what indicates to me that I'm successful with that. And sometimes for people, it's a number on a scale, but even if they do that and like they're not being as successful with the scale number, they still have this other few sentences written out where like, I am actually feeling this way. No, maybe the the scale isn't exactly what I want to be, but like, I'm feeling more confident. Like I'm, be, I am being a good role model for my kids. You know, all of these, I do have more energy, all the, all these kind of different things that they write out as kind of like the conceptual, how they want to improve. So it makes them not so tied down to that number on the scale. And it's really powerful. That's beautiful, man. That is that is so incredible because what we do is similar. It's just done in a slightly different way. Like you yeah. allow them, okay, you can have that. It sounds like to me, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but like, okay, you can have that scale goal, but you almost like protect them from themselves to go, okay, wait a minute. We're going to have some secondary things here that you may not realize it, but these are going to be so important as we move through this process. That's beautiful. Mine's a, you know, a goal, a specific goal setting program with like a specific duration. So there is kind of a end thing that they kind of want to achieve by the end of the 10 weeks, which I actually had trouble with initiating because it's like, I don't want people just to think they should only be doing these things for 10 weeks. And so like, that's just a constant communication that I have throughout the process. It's like, look, anyway, there's a lot of things I do in there that I'm like, you're not just doing this for 10 weeks, but just in the sake of like business and like running a challenge, like this is kind of how it has to be sometimes. What do you feel like is maybe some of the things that you've said or or coached to some of your clients that gave them some of the like biggest light bulb moments in regards to helping them enjoy the journey and not be so focused on figuring out a, a destination like wh- wh- what allows them to do that at a higher level man that's a great question I, I can tell you this the thing that I most consistently hear from my clients and students and people who listen to my podcast or whatever like, one of the biggest breakthrough things for them is that in order to change your body, in order to change anything in your life, you must first change your brain. And it sounds so simple on the surface, but I think we miss we miss just how much we miss that. Like we don't recognize how much we miss it because most people say, okay, I'm overweight or I'm out of shape. Man, I got to get myself together. Man, I got to get, you know, I got to get myself in order. And what's the first thing they do? They join a gym or they hire a trainer or they start a diet or they buy a diet book or whatever. Physical, 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 physical. You've done nothing to address this right here, this big chunk of tissue between your ears. And that, as you know, I mean, you know it, brother, that that drives everything in our life. Like the, the analogy that I like to use is if you get in your car, you can crank it up, you can slam on the gas or the brake, but if you have no steering wheel, who knows where you're going to end up? You know, you can try, try, try. You can push harder and harder and harder on the gas. You'll go somewhere, but you're going to crash. You're always going to crash and burn. And then you're going to wonder like, man, why, why, what happened? Why did this happen? 
the, to me, the brain is a steering wheel. And one of the central things I teach, and this is another response to your question that I think is a huge light bulb moment for people. I like to say that we have a bully in our brain. Nick, your thought there makes me be reminded of, you know, I don't live in the past. And for good or bad, I also don't live in the present. I live, I tend to live in the future. Good or bad, I tend to live in the future. And that has been an instrumental piece in my career, but also my personal life. I, I like to set goals. I like to live for a Saturday night's dinner party or next month's trip to Cabo or the next house I'm going to buy or, or going to a friend's you know, 40th birthday party. I like to look forward to things. And I, and I've, I think it's been a, a key defining aspect of my life. What's been positive is like you, I, I'm always, I never look back. I could stand to live more in the present, my wife tells me, right? True, as a father and as a spouse, I don't live in the present. I always live in the future, good and bad, but it's been an excellent mindset for my career. Not so much to where my boss thinks that I'm focused on the next job because what earned me the next job is crushing my current job. I never moved prematurely. They knew I was interested, but no one ever said to me, I wish Scott would just do the job he has versus always talk about the job he wants. I was very deliberate to make sure I gave evidence. I delivered results that positioned me for the next job. A couple of topics I want to hit on then before we kind of get to the last couple of quick questions is that idea of crushing the job that you're currently doing, but also kind of doing the job that you want, because that's one of the biggest things that you talk about in your Ignite Your Genius course. And you talk about some of the reasons why, top five reasons people get promoted. This is a bonus module that you have. And, and one of them is like help their leader outside of their day job. And you talk a lot about make sure you crush the current job. Don't always be looking to the future, as you said, but also be doing the job that you want. So talk a little bit about what that looks like for people. Well, this is an awkward and delicate balance because yeah. I think my experience has been that sorry for this generalization, most people are pendulums. They come this way and they swing this way and then they swing this way. I mean, look at American presidential politics, right? Bush and Obama and, you know, and then but, or Trump and, you know, and, and Biden. I mean, there's, you know, no things in moderation anymore. Yeah. I think in your career, you've got to be really calibrated. I like to use the metaphor of like, you know, a clutch and a gas, right? There's just this good calibration of a smooth transition from first to second gear. You've got to know how to crush the job you're in, how to over-deliver in your current job, but also behave in a way that informs people, that markets yourself, that you're interested in what's next, you're interested in doing more. That you say to your, your leader, hey, I think I've got my current stuff under control. Is there anything else that I could do to help you that could be a win for you? No doubt you have demands. I think one of the biggest issues that holds people back from promotion is they're, at an, they're in an antagonistic relationship with their leader. Is that they don't move out of their own mindset and wonder, what is it like to be the leader? What pressures is she under? What struggles is she having? What is it like to lead me? Most bad leaders aren't bad people. They're, they're just under pressures that you can't relate to. So I think if you're looking to have your leader be your champion, and you should because your leader can be your biggest champion or can crush opportunity for you. You need to make sure you're building a relationship with them where you're better understanding 
what pressures are they under? What projects do they need to accomplish? How can you make them look like a hero? Unless you're working for a narcissist, which at the end of the day, most of us aren't. We probably think we are, but we're not. Unless you're working for a sociopath or a narcissist, most leaders will give you credit. Most leaders will bring you up with them. Most leaders will appreciate your interest in moving outside of your current job. Just that gas and clutch calibration, right, of make sure you're not all of a sudden painting the roof, metaphorically, when you should be mowing the lawn. I see a lot, I do see a lot of people that I've coached that get so busy on managing their brand on the next job that they look back and the leader says, yeah, but you haven't done this. I hope you guys enjoyed that best of 2021 podcast episode. I got so much value from not only these individuals, but all the people that I interviewed and all the guests that were kind enough and gracious enough to spend 30 minutes to an hour plus of their time with me. I just am forever grateful for these people. I still remember back in March of 2018 when I formed Best You. And then later on that year in October when I released the first episodes of the Best You podcast. And I really can't believe that it's been over three years since I started releasing episodes and I've released at least two episodes every single week since then. And I've just been astounded and so blessed and so gracious and thankful for all of you guys who have been listening over the last maybe week, the last maybe couple weeks, the last couple months or the last few years to all you guys out there. Thank you. Thank you for making this so fun. Thank you for making it so enjoyable. Thank you for allowing me to do what I love to do, to have the conversations that I love to have and to learn how for me to personally get closer to the best version of myself and, and to share with you those same lessons, the same knowledge and the same tips and guidance so that you can get closer to your best you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you did, make sure you share it with a friend or family member. You never know how valuable this might be to them to starting off 2022 on the right foot. Be somebody else's champion. Be somebody else's cheerleader by sending them this episode and showing them that you believe in them for in 2022 and showing them and believing in them that they can have the best year of their entire lives. If you need help with your health and fitness goals, make sure you go to nickcarrier.com where you can download a couple of my free eBooks. My personal favorite one is Your Best Week where I give you a full body workout, an upper body and a lower body workout that you can follow. And then I give you my grocery list like they literally, my grocery list that I use every single week and three things to make sure that you avoid at the grocery store. Because if you can follow those things every single week, you're going to have your best week, week in and week out. And if you can be consistent with that, you're going to get closer to your health and fitness goals and you're going to get closer to the best version of yourself. So you can get that ebook at nickcarrier.com for free. Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Go out, finish 2021 strong, start to gain clarity around what your 2022 goals are That way, you can have confidence every single day, every single week, every single month, and every single year that you're going to go out there and get closer and closer to your best you. 